In Vimes's squalid office, Captain Carrot stared at a piece of paper. Repairs to guttering, watch house, Pseudopolis Yard. New downpipe, 35 degrees, Micklewhite Bend, four right-angled trusses, labour and making good, $16.35. There were more like them, including Constable Downspout's pigeon bill. He knew Sergeant Colon objected to the idea of a policeman being paid in pigeons, but Constable Downspout was a gargoyle, and gargoyles had no concept of money. But they knew a pigeon when they ate it. Still, things were improving. When Carrot had arrived, the entire watch's petty cash had been kept on a shelf in a tin marked Strong in the Arms Armour Polish for Gleaming Cohorts. And if money was needed for anything, all you had to do was go and find Nobby and force him to give it back. Then there was a letter from a resident in Park Lane, one of the most select addresses in the city. Commander Vimes, the night watch patrol in this street appears to be made up entirely of dwarfs. I have nothing against dwarfs among their own kind, at least they are not trolls, but one hears stories, and I have daughters in the house. I demand that this situation is remedied instantly, otherwise I shall have no option but to take up the matter with Lord Vetinari, who is a personal friend. I am, sir, your obedient servant, Joshua H. Catterail. This was police work, was it? He wondered if Mr Vimes were trying to tell him something. There were other letters. The Community Coordinator of Equal Heights for Dwarfs was demanding that dwarfs in the watch be allowed to carry an axe rather than the traditional sword and should be sent to investigate only those crimes committed by tall people. The Thieves' Guild was complaining that Commander Vimes had said publicly that most thefts were committed by thieves. You'd need the wisdom of King Isaiadanu to tackle them, and these were only today's letters. He picked up the next one and read, Translation of text found in Father Tubalchek's mouth, Y, S, V. Carrot dutifully read the translation. In his mouth? Someone tried to put words in his mouth, said Carrot to the silent room. He shivered, but not because of the cold that came from fear. Vimes's office was always cold. Vimes was an outdoors person. Fog was dancing in the open window, little fingers of it drifting in the light. The next paper down the heap was a copy of Cheery's iconograph. Carrot stared at the two blurred red eyes. Captain Carrot? He half turned his head, but kept looking at the picture. Yes, Fred? We've got the murderer. We've got him. Is he a golem? How did you know that? The tincture of night began to suffuse the soup of the afternoon. Lord Vetinari considered the sentence and found it good. He liked tincture particularly. Tincture. Tincture. It was a distinguished word and pleasantly countered by the flatness of soup. The soup of the afternoon. Yes, in which may well be found the croutons of tea-time. He was aware that he was a little light-headed. He'd never have thought a sentence like that in a normal frame of mind. In the fog outside the window, just visible by the candlelight, he saw the crouching shape of Constable Downspout. A gargoyle, huh? He'd wondered why the watch was indented for five pigeons a week on its wages bill. A gargoyle in the watch whose job it was to watch. That would be Captain Carrot's idea. Lord Vetinari got up carefully from the bed and closed the shutters. He walked slowly to his writing table, pulled his journal out of its drawer, then tugged out a wad of manuscript and unstoppered the ink bottle. Now then, where had he got to? Chapter 8, he read unsteadily. 
The Rights of Man. Ah, yes. Concerning truth, he wrote, that which may be spoken as events dictate, but should be heard on every occasion. He wondered how he could work soup of the afternoon into the treatise, or at least tincture of night. The pen scratched across the paper. Unheeded on the floor lay the tray that had contained a bowl of nourishing gruel, concerning which he had resolved to have strong words with the cook when he felt better. It had been tasted by three tasters, including Sergeant Detritus, who was unlikely to be poisoned by anything that worked on humans or even by most things that worked on trolls, but probably by most things that worked on trolls. The door was locked. Occasionally he could hear the reassuring creak of Detritus on his rounds. Outside the window the fog condensed on Constable Downspout. Vetinari dipped the pen in the ink and started a new page. Every so often he consulted the leather-bound journal, licking his fingers delicately to turn the thin pages. Tendrils of fog slipped in around the shutters and brushed against the wall until they were frightened away by the candlelight. Vimes pounded through the fog after the fleeing figure. It wasn't quite so fast as him, despite the twinges in his legs and one or two warning stabs from his left knee but whenever he came close to it, some muffled pedestrian got in the way, or a cart pulled out of a cross street. As always happens in any police chase anywhere, a heavily laden lorry will always pull out of a side alley in front of the pursuit. If vehicles aren't involved, then it'll be a man with a rack of garments, or two men with a large sheet of glass. There's probably some kind of secret society behind all this. His souls told him that they'd gone right down Broadway and had turned left into Nunsuch Street small square paving stones. The fog was even thicker here, trapped between the trees of the park. But Vimes was triumphant. You've missed your turning if you're heading for the shades, my lad. There's only the Ankh Bridge now, and there'll be a guard on that. His feet told him something else. They said, wet leaves. That's nonsuch street in the autumn. Small square paving stones with occasional treacherous drifts of wet leaves. They said it too late. Vimes landed on his chin in the gutter, staggered upright, fell over again as the rest of the universe spun past, got up, tottered a few steps in the wrong direction, fell over again, and decided to accept the majority vote for a while. Dorful was standing quietly in the station office, heavy arms folded across its chest. In front of the golem was the crossbow belonging to Sergeant Tritus, which had been converted from an ancient siege weapon. It fired a six-foot-long iron arrow. Nobby sat behind it, his finger on the trigger. "'Put it away, Nobby. You can't fire that in here,' said Carrot. "'You know we never find where the arrows stop.' "'We wrestled a confession out of it,' said Sergeant Colon, hopping up and down. "'It kept on admitting it, but we got it to confess in the end. "'And we've got those other crimes we'd like taken into consideration.' Dorful held up its slate. "'I am guilty.' Something fell out of its hand. It was short and white a piece of matchstick by the look of it. Carrot picked it up and stared at it. Then he looked at the list Colin had drawn up. It was quite long and consisted of every unsolved crime in the city for the past couple of months. It's confessed to all these? Not yet, said Nobby. We haven't read them all out yet, said Colin. Dorful wrote, I did everything. Hey, said Colin, Mr Vimes is going to be really pleased with us. Carrot walked up to the golem. There was a faint orange glow in its eyes. "'Did you kill Father Tubalcheck?' he said. "'Yes.' 
"'See,' said Sergeant Colon, "'you can't argue with that.' "'Why did you do it?' said Carrot. "'No reply. "'And Mr Hopkinson at the Bread Museum?' "'Yes.' "'You beat him to death with an iron bar?' said Carrot. "'Yes.' "'Hang on,' said Colon. "'I thought you said he was—' "'Leave it, Fred,' said Carrot. "'Why did you kill the old man, Dorthal?' "'No reply. "'Does there have to be a reason? "'You can't trust golems, my dad always used to say,' said Colon. "'Turn on you as soon as look at you,' he said. "'Have they ever killed anyone?' said Carrot. "'Not for want of thinking about it,' said Colon, darkly. "'My dad said he had to work with one once, "'and it used to look at him all the time. "'He'd turn around and there it would be, looking at him.' Dorfel sat staring straight in front. "'Shine a candle in its eyes,' said Nobby. Carrot pulled a chair across the floor and straddled it facing Dorfel. He absent-mindedly twirled the broken match between his fingers. "'I know you didn't kill Mr Hopkinson, "'and I don't think you killed Father Tubalcheck,' he said. "'I think he was dying when you found him. "'I think you tried to save him, Dorfel. "'In fact, I'm pretty sure I can prove it if I can see your chem.' The light from the golem's flaring eyes filled the room. He stepped forward, fists upraised. Nobby fired the crossbow. Dorfel snatched the long bolt out of the air. There was the sound of screaming metal, and the bolt became a thin bar of red-hot iron with a bulge piled up around the golem's grip. But Carrot was behind the golem, flipping open its head. As the golem turned, raising the iron bar like a club, the fire died in its eyes. Got it, said Carrot, holding up a yellowed scroll. At the end of Nunsuch Street was a gibbet, where wrongdoers, or at least people found guilty of wrongdoing, had been hung to twist gently in the wind as examples of just retribution, and as the elements took their toll, basic anatomy as well. Once parties of children were brought there by their parents to learn by dreadful example of the snares and perils that await the criminal, the outlaw, and those who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, and they would see the terrible wreckage creaking on its chain and listen to the stern imprecations, and then usually, this being Ankh Morpork, would say, Wow! Brilliant! and use the corpse as a swing. These days the city had more private and efficient ways of dealing with those it found surplus to requirements. But for the sake of tradition, the gibbet's incumbent was a quite realistic wooden body. The occasional stupid raven would have a peck at the eyeballs even now and end up with a much shorter beak. Vimes tottered up to it, fighting for breath. The quarry could have gone anywhere by now. Such daylight as had been filtering through the fog had given up. Vimes stood beside the gibbet, which creaked. It had been built to creak. What's the good of a public display of retribution, it had been argued, if it didn't creak ominously? In richer times, an elderly man had been employed to operate the creak by means of a length of string, but now there was a clockwork mechanism that needed to be wound up only once a month. Condensation dripped off the artificial corpse. "'Blow this for a lark,' muttered Vimes, and tried to head back the way he came. After ten seconds of blundering, he tripped over something. It was a wooden corpse, hurled into the gutter. When he got back to the gibbet, the empty chain was swinging gently, jingling in the fog. Sergeant Colon tapped the golem's chest. It went donk. "'Like a flower pot, said Nobby. How can they move around when they're like a pot, eh? They ought to keep cracking all the time. They're daft, too, said Colin. I heard there was one over in Querm who was made to dig a trench, and they forgot all about it and they only remembered it when there was all this water because it had dug all the way to the river. 
Carrot unrolled the chem on the table and laid beside it the paper that had been put in Father Tubalcheck's mouth. "'It's dead, is it?' said Sergeant Colon. "'It's harmless,' said Carrot, looking from one piece of paper to the other. "'Right. I've got a sledgehammer round the back somewhere. I'll just—' "'No,' said Carrot. "'You saw the way it was acting. "'I don't think it could actually have hit me. "'I think it just wanted to scare us. "'It worked. Look at these, Fred.' "'Sergeant Colon glanced at the desk. "'Foreign writing,' he said, "'in a voice which suggested that it was nothing like as good as decent home writing "'and probably smelled of garlic. "'Anything strike you about them?' "'Well, they looks the same.' Sergeant Colon conceded. This yellowing one is Dorfel's chem. The other one is from Father Tubalcheck, said Carrot. Letter for letter the same. Why's that? I think Dorfel wrote these words and put them in old Tubalcheck's mouth after the poor man died, said Carrot slowly, still looking from one piece of paper to the other. Ugh, yuck, said Nobby. That's mucky, that is. No, you don't understand, said Carrot. I mean he wrote them because they were the only ones he knew that worked. Worked how? Well, you know, the kiss of life, said Carrot. I mean, first aid. I know you know, Nobby. You came with me when they had that course at the YMPA. I only went because you said you got a free cup of tea and a biscuit, said Nobby sulkily. Anyway, the dummy ran away when it was my turn. It's the same with life-saving, too, said Carrot. We want people to breathe, so we try to make sure they've got some air in them. They all turned to look at the golem. But golems don't breathe, said Colon. No, a golem knows only one thing that keeps you alive, said Carrot. It's the words in your head. They all turned back to look at the words. They all turned to look at the statue that was Dorful. "'It's gone all cold in here,' Nobby quavered. "'I definitely felt an aura flickering in the air just then. "'It was like someone—' "'What's going on?' said Vimes, shaking the damp off his cloak. "'Opening the door,' said Nobby. "'It was ten minutes later. "'Sergeant Colon and Nobby had gone off duty to everyone's relief. "'Colon, in particular, had great difficulty with the idea "'that you went on investigating after someone had confessed. "'It outraged his training and experience.' You got a confession, and there it ended. You didn't go around disbelieving people. You disbelieved people only when they said they were innocent. Only guilty people were trustworthy. Anything else struck at the whole basis of policing. White clay, said Carrot. It was white clay we found, and practically unbaked. Dorfels made of dark terracotta and rock hard. The last thing the old priest saw was a golem, said Vimes. Dorful, I'm sure, said Carrot, but that's not the same as saying Dorful was the murderer. I think he turned up as the man was dying, that's all. Oh, why? I'm not sure yet, but I've seen Dorful around. He's always seemed a very gentle person. It works in a slaughterhouse. Maybe that's not a bad place for a gentle person to work, sir, said Carrot. Anyway, I've checked up all the records I can find, and I don't think a golem has ever attacked anyone, or committed any kind of crime. "'Oh, come on,' said Vimes. "'Everyone knows.' "'He stopped as his cynical ears heard his incredulous voice. "'What, never?' "'Oh, people are always saying that they know someone "'who has a friend whose grandfather heard of one killing someone, "'and that's about as real as it gets, sir. "'Golems aren't allowed to hurt people. It's in their words.' "'They give me the willies, I know that,' said Vimes. "'They give everyone the willies, sir.' You hear lots of stories about them doing stupid things like making a thousand teapots or digging a hole five miles deep, 
said Vimes. Yes, but that's not exactly criminal activity, is it, sir? That's just ordinary rebellion. What do you mean, rebellion? Dumbly obeying orders, sir. You know, someone shouts at it, go and make teapots, so it does. Can't be blamed for obeying orders, sir. No one told them how many. No one wants them to think, so they get their own back by not thinking. They rebel by working. It's just a thought, sir. It'd make more sense to a golem, I expect. Automatically, they turned again to look at the silent shape of the golem. Can it hear us? said Vimes. I don't think so, sir. This business with the words. Er, uh, I think they think a dead human is just someone who's lost his kim. I don't think they understand how we work, sir. Them and me both, Captain. Vimes stared at the hollow eyes. The top of Dorfel's head was still open so that light shone down through the sockets. Vimes had seen many horrible things on the street, but the silent golem was somehow worse. You could too easily imagine the eyes flaring and the thing standing up and striding forward, fists flailing like sledgehammers. It was more than just his imagination. It seemed to be built into the things, a potentiality biding its time. That's why we all hate them, he thought. Those expressionless eyes watch us, those big faces turn to follow us. And doesn't it just look as if they're making notes and taking names? If you heard that one had bashed in someone's head over in Quirm or somewhere, wouldn't you just love to believe it? A voice inside, a voice which generally came to him only in the quiet hours of the night, or in the old days halfway down a whiskey bottle, added, Given how we use them, maybe we're scared because we know we deserve it. No, there's nothing behind those eyes. There's just clay and magic words. Vimes shrugged. I chased a golem earlier, he said. It was standing on the brass bridge, damned thing. Look, we've got a confession and the eyeball evidence. If you can't come up with anything better than a feeling, then we'll have to... To what, sir? said Carrot. There isn't anything more we could do to him. He's dead now. Inanimate, you mean? Yes, sir, if you want to put it that way. If Dorfel didn't kill the old men, who did? Don't know, sir, but I think Dorfel does. Maybe he was following the murderer. Could it have been ordered to protect someone? Maybe, sir. Or he decided to. You'll be telling me it's got emotions next. Where's Angua gone? She thought she'd check a few things, sir, said Carrot. I was puzzled about this, sir. It was in his hand. He held up the object. A piece of matchstick? Golems don't smoke and they don't use fire, sir. It's just odd that he should have the thing, sir. Oh, said Vimes sarcastically. A clue. Dorfel's trail was the word on the street. The mixed smells of the slaughterhouse filled Angua's nostrils. The journey zigzagged, but with a certain directional tendency. It was as if the golem had laid a ruler across the town and taken every road and alley that went in the right direction. She came to a short, blind alley. There were some warehouse gates at the end. She sniffed. There were plenty of other smells, too. Dough, paint, grease, pine resin. Sharp, loud, fresh scents. She sniffed again. Cloth? Wool? There was a confusion of footprints in the dirt, large footprints. The small part of Angua that always walked on two legs saw that the footprints coming out were on top of the footprints going in. She snuffled around. Up to twelve creatures, each with their own very distinctive smell, the smell of merchandise rather than living creatures, had all very recently gone down the stairwell, and all twelve had come back up. 
she went down the steps and was met by an impenetrable barrier. A door. Paws were no good at doorknobs. She peered over the top of the steps. There was no one around. Only the fog hung between the buildings. She concentrated and changed. Leaned against the wall for a moment until the world stopped spinning and tried the door. There was a large cellar beyond. Even with a werewolf's eyesight, there wasn't much to see. She had to stay human. She thought better when she was human. Unfortunately, here and now, as a human, the thought occupying her mind in no small measure was that she was naked. Anyone finding a naked woman in their cellar would be bound to ask questions. They might not even bother with questions, even ones like, please. Angua could certainly deal with that situation, but she preferred not to have to. It was so difficult explaining away the shape of the wounds. No time to waste, then. The walls were covered in writing. Big letters, small letters, but all in that neat script which the golems used. There were phrases in chalk and paint and charcoal, and in some cases simply cut into the stone itself. They reached from floor to ceiling, crisscrossing one another over and over again, so often that it was almost impossible to make out what any of them were meant to say. Here and there a word or two stood out in the jumble of letters. Shalt not. What he does is not. Rage at the Creator. Woe unto the Masterless. Words in the clay of our... Let my... Bring us to free... The dust in the middle of the floor was scuffed, as if a number of people had been milling around. She crouched down and rubbed the dirt, occasionally sniffing her finger. Smells. They were industrial smells. She hardly needed special senses to detect them. A golem didn't smell of anything except clay and whatever it was it was working with at the time. And something rolled under her fingers. It was a length of wood only a couple of inches long. A matchstick without a head. A few minutes' investigation found another ten lying here and there as if they'd been idly dropped. There was also half a stick, tossed away some distance from the others. Her night vision was fading, but sense of smell lasted much longer. Smells were strong on the sticks. The same cocktail of odours that had trailed into this damp room. But the slaughterhouse smell she'd come to associate with Dorful was on only the broken piece. She sat back on her haunches and looked at the little heap of wood. Twelve people. Twelve people in messy jobs had come here. They hadn't stayed long. They'd had a discussion, the writing on the wall. They'd done something involving eleven matches, just the wooden part. They hadn't been dipped to get the head. Maybe the pine-smelling golem worked in a match factory. Plus one broken match. Then they'd all left and gone their separate ways. Dorfel's way had taken him straight to the main watch house to give himself up. Why? She sniffed at the piece of broken match again, there was no doubt about the cocktail of blood and meat smells. Dorfel had given himself up for murder. She stared at the writing on the wall and shivered. Cheers, Fred, said Nobby, raising his pint. We can put the money back in the tea club tomorrow. No one will miss it, said Sergeant Colon. Anyway, this comes under the heading of an emergency. Corporal Nobbs looked despondently into his glass. People often did this in the mended drum, when the immediate thirst had been slaked, and for the first time they could take a good look at what they were drinking. "'What am I going to do?' he moaned. "'If you're a knob, you've got to wear coronets and long robes and that. "'Got to cost a mint, that kind of stuff. "'And there's stuff you've got to do,' he took another long swig. "'It's called 
Noblus obligi. Nobilius obligi, corrected Colon. Yeah, means you've got to keep your end up in society, giving money to charities, being kind to the poor, passing your old clothes to your gardener when there's still some good wear left in him. I know about that my uncle was butler to old Lady Salachi. Ain't got a gardener, said Nobby gloomily. Ain't got a garden. Ain't got any old clothes except what I'm wearing. He took another swig. She gave her old clothes to the gardener, did she? Colin nodded. Yeah, we were always a bit puzzled about that gardener. He caught the barman's eye. Two more pints of winkles, Ron. He glanced at Nobby. His old friend looked more dejected than he'd ever seen him. They'd have to see this thing through together. Better make that two for Nobby, too, he added. Cheers, Fred. Sergeant Colan's eyebrows raised as one pint was emptied almost in one go. Nobby put the mug down a little unsteadily. Wouldn't be so bad if there was a pot of cash, Nobby said, picking up the other mug. I thought you couldn't be a knob without being a rich bugger. I thought they gave you a big wad with one hand and banged the crown on your head with the other. Don't make sense, being knobby and poor. It's worst of both worlds. He drained the mug and banged it down. Common and rich. Yeah, that I could help. The barman leaned over to Sergeant Colan. What's up with the corporal? He's a half-pint man. That's eight pints he's had. Fred Colan leaned closer and spoke out of the corner of his mouth. Keep it to yourself, Ron, but it's because he's a peer. Is that a fact? I'll go and put down some fresh sawdust. In the watchhouse, Sam Vimes prodded the matches. He didn't ask Angua if she was sure. Angua could smell if it was Wednesday. So, who were the others, he said. Other golems? It's hard to tell from the tracks, said Angua, but I think so. I'd have followed them, but I thought I ought to come right back here. What makes you think they were golems? The footprints. And golems have no smell, she said. They pick up the smells associated with whatever they're doing. That's all they smell of. She thought of the wall of words. And they had a long debate, she said. A golem argument, in writing. It got pretty heated, I think. She thought about the wall again. Some of them got quite emphatic, she added, remembering the size of some of the lettering. If they were human, they'd have been shouting. Vimes stared gloomily at the matches laid out before him, eleven bits of wood and a twelfth broken in two. You didn't need to be any kind of genius to see what had been going on. They drew lots, he said, and Dorful lost. He sighed. This is getting worse, he said. Does anyone know how many golems there are in the city? No, said Carrot. Hard to find out. No one's made any for centuries, but they don't wear out. No one makes them. It's banned, sir. The priests are pretty hot on that, sir. They say it's making life, and that's something only gods are supposed to do. But they put up with the ones that are still around because, well, they're so useful. Some are walled up or in treadmills or at the bottom of shafts, doing messy tasks, you know, in places where it's dangerous to go. They do all the really mucky jobs. I suppose there could be hundreds. Hundreds, said Vimes. And now they meet secretly and make plots. Good grief. Right. We ought to destroy the lot of them. Why? You like the idea of them having secrets? I mean, good grief. Trolls and dwarfs are fine. Even the undead are alive in a way, even if it is a bloody awful way. Vimes caught Angua's eye and went on, for the most part. But these things, they're just... Things that do work. It's like having a bunch of shovels meeting for a chat. Er, uh, there was something else, sir, said Angua slowly, in the cellar. 
Yes, um, but it's hard to explain. It was a feeling. Vimes shrugged non-committally. He'd learned not to scoff at Angua's feelings. She always knew where Carrot was, for one thing. If she were in the watchhouse, you could tell if he were coming up the street by the way she turned to look at the door. Yes? Like deep grief, sir. Terrible, terrible sadness. Um... Vimes nodded and pinched the bridge of his nose. It seemed to have been a long day and it was far from over yet. He really, really needed a drink. The world was distorted enough as it was. When you saw it through the bottom of a glass, it all came back into focus. "'Have you had anything to eat today, sir?' said Angua. "'I had a bit of breakfast,' muttered Vimes. "'You know that word Sergeant Colon uses?' "'What, manky?' "'That's how you look. "'If you're staying here, at least let's have some coffee and send out for figgins.' Vimes hesitated at that. He'd always imagined that manky was how your mouth felt after three days on a regurgitated diet. It was horrible to think that you could look like that. Angua reached for the old coffee tin that represented the watch's tea kitty. It was surprisingly easy to lift. "'Hey, there should be at least twenty-five dollars in here,' she said. "'Nobby collected it only yesterday.' She turned the tin upside down. A very small dog-end dropped out. "'Not even an I.O.U.' said Carrot despondently. "'An I.O.U.? This is Nobby we're talking about.' "'Oh, of course.' It had gone very quiet in the mended drum. Happy hour had been passed with no more than a minor fight. Now everyone was watching unhappy hour. There was a forest of mugs in front of Nobby. "'I mean, I mean, what's it worth when all's said and done?' he said. "'You could flog it,' said Ron. "'Good point,' said Sergeant Colon. "'There's plenty of rich folks who'd give a sack of cash for a title. "'I mean, folks that's already got the big house and that. "'They'd give anything to be as nobby as you, Nobby.' "'The ninth pint stopped halfway to Nobby's lips. "'Could be worth thousands of dollars,' said Ron encouragingly. "'At the very least,' said Colon. "'They'd fight over it.' "'You play your cards right and you could retire on something like that,' said Ron. "'The mug remained stationary.' Various expressions fought their way around the lumps and excrescences of Nobby's face, suggesting the terrible battle within. "'Oh, they would, would they?' he said at last. Sergeant Colon tilted unsteadily away. There was an edge in Nobby's voice he hadn't heard before. "'Then you could be rich and common, just like you said,' said Ron, who didn't have quite the same eye for mental weather changes. Posh folks would be falling over themselves for it.' "'Sell my birthright?' "'For a spot of massage? Is that it?' said Nobby. "'It's a pot of message,' said Sergeant Colon. "'It's a mess of pottage,' said a bystander, anxious not to break the flow. "'Ha, ha! Well, I'll tell you,' said Nobby, swaying. "'There's some things that can't be sold, eh? Huh? Huh? "'Who streals my purse streals the trasf, right?' "'Yeah, it's the trashiest-looking purse I ever saw,' said a voice. "'What is a mess of pottage, anyway? "'Cause what good a lot of money do me, eh?' "'The clientele looked puzzled. "'This seemed to be a question on the lines of "'alcohol, is it nice? "'Or hard work, do you want to do it?' "'What's messy about it, then?' "'Well,' said a brave soul uncertainly. You could use it to buy a big house, lots of grub and drink and uh, and, 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 and women and that. That's what it takes 
to make a man happy, is it? said Nobby, glassy-eyed. His fellow drinkers just stared. This was a metaphysical maze. Well, I'll tell you, said Nobby, the swaying now so regular that he looked like an inverted pendulum. All that stuff's nothing. Nothing, I tell you, compared to pride in a man's linen-yin-yin-yin-yin-yin-yin-yin-yin-yin-yin-yin-yin-yin-yin-yin-yin-yin-yin-yin-yin-yin-yin-yin-yin-yin-yin-yin-yin-yin-yin-yin-yin-y
Scummy as the place was, he liked it here. With the buzz of other people around him, he didn't seem to get in the way of his own thoughts. One reason that Mr. Cheese had allowed his pub to become practically the city's fifth watchhouse was the protection this offered. Watchmen were quiet drinkers on the whole. They just went from vertical to horizontal with the minimum amount of fuss, without starting any major fights and without damaging the fixtures overmuch. And no one ever tried to rob him. Watchmen got really intense about having their drinking disturbed. And he was therefore surprised when the door was flung open and three men rushed in, flourishing crossbows. Don't nobody move, anyone moves, and they're dead. The robbers stopped at the bar. To their own surprise, their arrival didn't seem to have caused much of a stir. Oh, for heaven's sake, will someone shut that door? growled Vimes. A watchman near the door did so. And bolt it, Vimes added. The three thieves looked around. As their eyes grew accustomed to the gloom, they received a general impression of amorality, with strong overtones of helmetness. But none of it was moving, it was all watching them. You boys new in town, said Mr. Cheese, buffing a glass. The boldest of the three waved his bow under the barman's nose. All the money right now, he screamed. Otherwise, he said to the room in general, you've got a dead barman. Plenty of other bars in town, boyo, said a voice. Mr. Cheese didn't look up from the glass he was polishing. I know that was you, Constable Thighbiter, he said calmly. There's two dollars and thirty pence on your slate. Thank you very much. The thieves drew closer together. Bars shouldn't act like this, and they fancied they could hear the faint sliding noises of assorted weapons being drawn from various sheaths. Haven't I seen you before? said Carrot. Oh, gods, it's him, moaned one of the men, the bread thrower. I thought Mr. Ironcrust was taking you to the Thieves' Guild, Carrot went on. There was a bit of an argument about taxes. Don't tell him. Carrot tapped his head. The tax forms, he said. I expect Mr. Ironcrust is worried I've forgotten about them. The thieves were now so close together, they looked like a fat six-armed man with a very large bill for hats. Er, uh, watchmen aren't allowed to kill people, right? said one of them. Not while we're on duty, said Vimes. The boldest of the three moved suddenly, grabbed Angua, and pulled her upright. We walk out of here unharmed or the girl gets it, all right, he snarled. Someone sniggered. I hope you're not going to kill anyone, said Carrot. That's up to us. Sorry? Was I talking to you? said Carrot. Don't worry, I'll be fine, said Angua. She looked around to make sure Cheery wasn't there, and then sighed. Come on, gentlemen, let's get it over with. Don't play with your food, said a voice from the crowd. There were one or two giggles until Carrot turned in his seat, whereupon everyone was suddenly intensely interested in their drinks. It's OK, said Angua, quietly. Aware that something was out of kilter, but not quite sure what it was, the thieves edged back to the door. No one moved as they unbolted it, and still holding Angua, stepped out into the fog, shutting the door behind them. Hadn't we better help? said a constable, who was new to the watch. They don't deserve help, said Vimes. There was a clank of armour and then a long, deep growl right outside in the street, and a scream. And then another scream, and a third scream, modulated with, No, 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 no! Ah! 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 Something heavy hit the door. Vimes turned back to Carrot. You and Constable Angua, he said. You, uh, get along all right? Fine, sir, said Carrot. Some people might think that, uh, there might be, uh, problems. There was a thud and then a faint bubbling noise. We work around them, sir, said Carrot, raising his voice slightly. 
I heard that her father's not very happy about her working here. They don't have much law up in Uberwald, sir. They think it's for weak societies. The Baron's not a very civic-minded man. He's pretty bloodthirsty from what I've heard. She wants to stay in the watch, sir. She likes meeting people. From outside came another gurgle, fingernails scrabbled at a window pane. Then their owner disappeared abruptly from view. Well, it's not for me to judge, said Vimes. No, sir. After a few moments of silence, the door opened slowly. Angua walked in, adjusting her clothes, and sat down. All the watchmen in the room suddenly took a second course of advanced beer study. Er, uh, Carrot began. Flesh wounds, said Angua, but one of them did shoot one of the others in the leg by accident. I think you'd better put it in your report as self-inflicted wounds while resisting arrest, said Vimes. Yes, sir, said Angua. Not all of them, said Carrot. They tried to rob our bar and take a werewolf, uh, Angua, hostage, said Vimes. Oh, I see what you mean, sir, said Carrot. Self-inflicted. Yes, of course. It had gone quiet in the mended drum. This was because it is usually very hard to be both loud and unconscious. Sergeant Colan was impressed at his own cleverness. Throwing a punch could stop a fight, of course, but in this case it had a quarter of rum, gin, and sixteen chopped lemons floating in it. Some people were still upright, however. They were the serious drinkers who drank as if there was no tomorrow and rather hoped this would be the case. Fred Colon had reached the convivial drunk stage. He turned to the man beside him. It's good here, isn't it? he managed. When are they going to tell me wife? That's what I want to know, moaned the man. Dunno, see you've been, been, been working late, said Colon, and suck a peppermint before you goes home, that usually works. Working late, huh? I've been given the sack, me. A craftsman, fifteen years at Spadger and Williams, right? And then they go bust because of Carrie undercutting them and I get a job at Carrie's and bang, I'm out of a job there too. Surplus to requirements. Bloody golems forcing real people out of a job. What they want to work for, they got no mouth to feed here. <laughs> but the damn thing goes at it so fast you can't see its bloody arms moving. Shame. Smash him up, that's what I say. I mean, we had a golem at S&W's, but old schlob just used to plod along, you know, not buzz away like a blue-arse fly. You want to watch it, mate. They'll have your job next. Stoneface wouldn't stand for it, said Colin, undulating gently. Any chance of a job with you lot, then? Dunno, said Colin. The man seems to have become two men. What's it you do? I'm a wick dipper and end teaser, mate, they said. I can see that's a useful trade. Here you go, Fred, said the barman, tapping him on the shoulder and putting a piece of paper in front of him. Colon watched with interest as figures danced back and forth. He tried to focus on the one at the bottom, but it was too big to take in. What's this, then? His Imperial Lordship's bar bill, said the barman. Don't be daft. No one can drink that much. I'm not paying. I'm including breakages, mind you. Yeah, like what? The barman pulled a heavy hickory stick from its hiding place under the bar. Arms, legs, suit yourself, he said. Oh, come on, Ron. You've known me for years. Yes, Fred, you've always been a good customer, so what I'll do is I'll let you shut your eyes first. But that's all the money I've got, the barman grinned. Lucky one for you, eh? Cheery Littlebottom leaned against the corridor wall outside her privy and wheezed. 
It was something alchemists learned to do early in their career. As her tutors had said, there were two signs of a good alchemist, the athletic and the intellectual. A good alchemist of the first sort was someone who could leap over the bench and be on the far side of a safely thick wall in three seconds, and a good alchemist of the second sort was someone who knew exactly when to do this. The equipment didn't help. She scrounged what she could from the guild, but a real alchemical laboratory should be full of the kind of glassware that looked as if it were produced during the Guild of Glassblowers' all-comers hiccuping contest. A proper alchemist did not have to run tests, using as her beaker a mug with a picture of a teddy bear on it, which Corporal Nobbs was probably going to be very upset about when he found it missing. When she judged that the fumes had cleared, she ventured back into her tiny room. That was another thing. Her books on alchemy were marvellous objects, every page a work of the engraver's art, but they nowhere contained instructions like, be sure to open a window. They did have instructions like, add aqua queermis to the zinc until rising gas use vigorously evolved. But never added, don't do this at home, or even, and say fare thee well to thy eyebrows. Anyway... The glassware remained innocent of the brown-black sheen that, according to the compound of alchemy, would indicate arsenic in the sample. She'd tried every type of food and drink she could find in the palace pantries and pressed into service every bottle and jar she could discover in the watchhouse. She tried one more time with what said on the packet it was sample two. Looked like a smear of cheese. Cheese? The various fumes thronging around her head were making her slow. She must have taken some cheese samples. She was pretty sure sample 17 had been some Lancre blue vein, which had reacted vigorously with the acid, blown a small hole in the ceiling, and covered half the workbench with a dark green substance that was setting like tar. She tested this one anyway. A few minutes later she was scrabbling furiously through her notebook. The first sample she'd taken from the pantry, one portion of duck pâté, was down here as sample 3. What about samples 1 and 2? No, sample one had been the white clay from Misbegot Bridge, so what had been two? She found it. But that couldn't be right. She looked up at the glass tube. Metallic arsenic grinned back at her. She'd retained a bit of the sample. She could test again, but perhaps it would be better to tell someone. She hurried along to the main office where a troll was on duty. Where's Commander Vimes? The troll grinned. In the gleam, little bottom. Thank you. The troll turned back to address a worried-looking monk in a brown cassock. And, he said, Best if he tells it himself, said the monk. I only work on the next bench. He put a small jar of dust on the desk. It had a bow tie around it. I want to complain most emphatically, said the dust in a shrill little voice. I was working there only five minutes and then splash. It's going to take days to get back into shape. Working where? said the troll. "'None such ecclesiastical supplies,' said the worried monk helpfully. "'Holy water section,' said the vampire. "'You found arsenic?' said Vimes. "'Yes, sir, lots. The sample's full of it, but—' "'Well?' Cheery looked at her feet. "'I tried my process again with a test sample, sir, and I'm sure I'm doing it right.' "'Good. What was it in?' That's just it, sir. It wasn't in anything from the palace, because I'd got a bit confused and tested the stuff I found under Father Tubalcheck's fingernails, sir. What? There was grease under his nails, sir, and I thought maybe it could have come from whoever attacked him. 
off an apron or something. I've still got some left if you want a second opinion, sir. I wouldn't blame you. Why would the old man be handling poison? said Carrot. I thought he might have scratched the murderer, said Cheery. You know, put up a fight. With the arsenic monster, said Angua. Oh, gods, said Vimes. What time is it? Bingly, bingly, beep, bong. Oh, damn. It's nine of the clock, said the organiser, poking its head out of Vimes's pocket. I was unhappy because I had no shoes until I met a man with no feet. The watchman exchanged glances. What? said Vimes, very carefully. People like it if I occasionally come up with a little aphorism or inspiring thought for the day, said the imp. So, how did you meet this man with no feet? said Vimes. I didn't actually meet him, said the imp. It was a general metaphorical statement. Well, that's it then, said Vimes. If you'd met him, you could have asked him if he had any boots he didn't have any use for. There was a squeak as he pushed the imp back into its box. There's more, sir, said Cheery. Go on, said Vimes, wearily. And I had a careful look at the clay we found at the murder scene, said Cheery. Igneous said it had a lot of grog in it. Old powdered pottery. Well, I chipped a bit off Dorful to compare, and I can't be sure, but I got the iconograph demon to paint really small details, and I think there's some clay just like his in there. He's got a lot of iron oxide in his clay. Vimes sighed. All around them people were drinking alcohol. One drink would make it all so clear. Any of you know what any of this means, he said. Carrot and Angua shook their heads. Is it supposed to make sense if we know how all the pieces fit together? Vimes demanded, raising his voice. Like pieces of a jigsaw, sir, Cheery ventured. Yes, said Vimes, so loudly that the room went quiet. Now all we need is the corner bit with the piece of sky and the leaves and it'll all be one big picture. It's been a long day for all of us, sir, said Carrot. Vimes sagged. OK, he said. Tomorrow... I want you, Carrot, to check on the golems in the city. If they're up to something, I want to know what it is. And you, Little Bottom, you look everywhere in the old man's house for more arsenic. I wish I could believe that you'll find any. Angua had volunteered to walk Little Bottom back to her lodgings. The dwarf was surprised that the men let her do this. After all, it would mean that Angua would then have to walk on home by herself. Aren't you afraid? Cheery said as they ambled through the damp clouds of fog. Nope. But I imagine muggers and cutthroats would be out in a fog like this, and you said you lived in the shades. Oh, yes, but I haven't been bothered lately. Ah, perhaps they're frightened of the uniform. Possibly, said Angua. Probably they've learned respect. You may be right. Er, uh, excuse me, but are you and Captain Carrot? Angua waited politely. Ah. Uh, Oh, yes, said Angua, taking pity. We're, er, uh, but I stay at Mrs. Cake's boarding house because you need your own space in a city like this. And an understanding landlady sympathetic to those with special needs, she added to herself, like door handles that a poor could operate, and a window left open on moonlit nights. You've got to have somewhere where you can be yourself. Anyway, the watch house smells of socks. I'm staying with my Uncle Armstrangler, said Cheery. It's not very nice there. People talk about mining most of the time. Don't you? There's not a lot you can say about mining. I mine in my mine and what's mine is mine, said Cheery in a sing-song voice. And then they go on about gold, which, frankly, is a lot duller than people think. I thought dwarfs loved gold, said Angua. They just say that to get it into bed. 
Are you sure you're a dwarf? Sorry, that was a joke. There must be more interesting things. Hair, clothes, people. Good grief, you mean girl talk? I don't know, I've never talked girl talk before, said Cheery. Dwarfs just talk. Uh, it's like that in the watch too, said Angua. You can be any sex you like, provided you act male. There's no men and women in the watch, just a bunch of lads. You'll soon learn the language. Basically, it's how much beer you supped last night, how strong the curry was you had afterwards, and where you were sick. Just think egotistical. You'll soon get the hang of it, and you'll have to be prepared for sexually explicit jokes in the watch house. Cheery blushed. Mind you, that seems to have ended now, said Angua. Why? Did you complain? No, after I joined in, it all seemed to stop, said Angua. And you know they didn't laugh. Not even when I did the hand gestures, too. I thought that was unfair. Mind you, some of them were quite small gestures. There's no help for it. I'll have to move out, sighed Cheery. I feel all wrong. Angua looked down at the little figure trudging along beside her. She recognised the symptoms. Everyone needed their own space, just like Angua did. And sometimes that space was inside their heads. And she liked Cheery, oddly enough. Possibly it was because of her earnestness or the fact that she was the only person apart from Carrot who didn't look slightly frightened when they talked to her. And that was because she didn't know. Angua wanted to preserve that ignorance as a small precious thing, but she could tell when someone needed a little change in their lives. "'We're going quite close to Elm Street,' she said carefully. "'Just uh, drop in for a while. I've got some stuff you could borrow.' "'I won't be needing it,' she told herself. "'When I go, I won't be able to carry much.' Constable Downspout watched the fog. Watching was, after staying in one place, the thing he did best. But he was also good at keeping quite still. Not making any noise whatsoever was another of his best features. When it came to doing absolutely nothing at all, he was among the finest. But it was keeping completely motionless in one place that was his forty. If there was a roll call for the world champion non-movers, he wouldn't even turn up. Now, chin on his hands, he watched the fog. The clouds had settled somewhat, so that up here, six stories above the streets, it was possible to believe you were on a beach at the edge of a cold, moonlit sea. The occasional tall tower or steeple rose out of the clouds, but all sounds were muffled and pulled in on themselves. Midnight came and went. Constable Downspout watched and thought about pigeons. Constable Downspout had very few desires in life, and almost all of them involved pigeons. A group of figures lurched, staggered, or in one case rolled through the fog, like the four horsemen of a small apocalypse. One had a duck on his head, and because he was almost entirely sane, except for this one strange particular, he was known as the Duck Man. One coughed and expectorated repeatedly, and hence was called Coffin Henry. One, a legless man on a small wheeled trolley, was for no apparent reason called Arnold Sideways, and the fourth for some very good reasons indeed, was called Foul Old Ron. Ron had a small greyish-brown torn-eared terrier on the end of a string, although in truth it would be hard for an observer to know exactly who was leading whom, and who, when push came to shove, would be the one to fold at the knees if the other one shouted sit. Because although trained canines as aids for those bereft of sight, and even of hearing, have frequently been used throughout the universe, Foul Old Ron was the first person ever to own a thinking brain dog. The beggars, led by the dog, were heading for the dark arch of Misbegot Bridge, which they called Home. At least one of them called it Home. The others respectively called it Hawk, Hawk, Hawk. 
<laughs> Whoops. And bugger it, Millennium Hand and Shrimp. As they stumbled along the riverside, they passed a can from hand to hand, drinking appreciatively and occasionally belching. The dog stopped. The beggars shunted to a halt behind it. A figure came towards them along the riverside. He goes, Petit, it. The beggars flung themselves against a wall as the pale figure lurched past. It was clutching at its head, as if trying to lift itself off the ground by its ears, and then occasionally banging its head against nearby buildings. While they watched, it pulled a metal mooring post out of the cobbles and started to hit itself over the head. Eventually the cast iron shattered. The figure dropped the stub, flung back its head, opened a mouth from which red light spilled, and roared like a bull in distress. Then it staggered on into the darkness. "'Eh, that's a golem again,' said the duckman. "'The white one!' <laughs> "'I gets heads like that myself some mornings,' said Arnold sideways. <laughs> "'I knows about golems,' <coughs> said Coffin Henry, "'spitting expertly and hitting a beetle climbing the wall twenty feet away. "'They ain't supposed to have a voice.' <laughs> "'Buggery, <it. coughs> said foul old Ron. "'Dang the twigger for a bang in the fussle on shrimp.' <coughs> "'Cause the worm's on the other boot. <laughs> See if he don't.' "'He meant it's the same one we saw the other day,' said the dog, "'after that old priest got topped. "'Do you think we should tell someone?' said the duck man. "'The dog shook its head. "'Nah,' it said. "'We got a cushy number down here. "'No sense in spoiling it.' "'The five of them staggered on into the damp shadows. <laughs> "'I hate bloody golems taking our jobs. <laughs> "'We ain't got jobs.' See what I mean? What's for supper? Mud and old boots. <laughs> Millennium hand and shrimp, I says. Glad I got a voice. I can speak up for myself. It's time you fed your duck. What duck? The fog glowed and sizzled around five and seven yard. Flames roared up and all but set the thick clouds alight. Spitting liquid iron cooled in its moulds. Hammers rang out around the workshops. The ironmasters didn't work by the clock, but by the more demanding physics of molten metal. Even though it was nearly midnight, strong-in-the-arms iron founders, beaters and general forging were still bustling. There were many strong-in-the-arms in, in Ankh-Morpork. It was a very common dwarf name. That had been a major consideration for Thomas Smith when he'd adopted it by official deed poll. The scowling dwarf holding a hammer which adorned his sign was a mere figment of the sign-painter's imagination. People thought dwarf-made was better, and Thomas Smith had decided not to argue. The Committee for Equal Heights had objected, but things had mired somewhat, because firstly, most of the actual committee was human, since dwarfs were generally too busy to worry about that sort of thing, and for the most part were unconcerned about matters of height. There's a dwarfish saying, all trees are felled at ground level, although this is said to be an excessively bodlerized translation for a saw which more literally means, when his hands are higher than your head, his groin is level with your teeth. And in any case, their position hinged on pointing out that Mr. Strong in the arm, nay, Smith, was too tall, which was clearly a sizist discrimination and technically illegal under the committee's own rules. In the meantime, Thomas had let his beard grow, wore an iron helmet if he thought anyone official was around, and put up his prices by twenty pence on the dollar. The drop hammers thumped, all in a row, powered by the big ox treadmill. There were swords to beat out and panels to be shaped. Sparks erupted. Strong in the arm took off his helmet, the committee had been around again, 
and wiped the inside. Dibbuk, where the hell are you? A sensation of filled space made him turn. The foundry's golem was standing a few inches behind him, the forge light glowing on his dark red clay. I told you not to do that, didn't I? Strong in the arm shouted above the din. The golem held up its slate. Yes. You've gone and done all your holy day stuff. You were away too long. Sorrow. Well, now you're back with us. Go and take over on number three, Hammer, and send Mr. Vincent up to my office, right? Yes. Strong in the arm climbed the stairs to his office. He turned at the top to look back across the red-lit foundry floor. He saw Dibbuck walk over to the hammer and hold up a slate for the foreman. He saw Vincent, the foreman, walk away. He saw Dibbuck take the sword blank that was being shaped and hold it in place for a few blows, then hurl it aside. Strong in the arm hurried back down the steps. When he was halfway down, Dibbuck had laid his head on the anvil. When Strong in the arm reached the bottom, the hammer struck for the first time. When he was halfway across the ash-crusted floor, other workers scurrying after him, the hammer struck for the second time. As he reached Dibbuk, the hammer struck for the third time. The glow faded in the golem's eyes. A crack appeared across the impassive face. The hammer went back up for the fourth time. Dark! screamed Strong in the arm, and then there was nothing but pottery. When the thunder had died away, the foundry master got to his feet and brushed himself off. Dust and wreckage were strewn across the floor. The hammer had jumped its bearings and was lying by the anvil in a heap of golem shards. Strong in the arm gingerly picked up a piece of a foot, tossed it aside, and then reached down again and pulled a slate out of the wreckage. He read, The old men helped us. Thou shalt not kill. Clay of my clay. Shame. Sorrow. His foreman looked over Strong in the arm's shoulder. What did he go and do that for? How should I know? snapped Strong in the arm. I mean, it brought the tea round this afternoon as normal as anything, then it went off for a couple of hours and now this. Strong in the arm shrugged. A golem was a golem, and that was all there was to it, but the recollection of that bland face positioning itself under the giant hammer had shaken him. I heard the other day the sawmill in Dimwell Street wouldn't mind selling the one it's got, said the foreman. It's sawed up a mahogany trunk into matchsticks or something. You want I should go and have a word? Strong in the arm looked at the slate again. Dibbuk had never been very wordy. He'd carry red-hot iron, hammer sword blanks with his fists, clean out clinkers from a smelter still too hot for a man to touch, and never say a word. Of course, he couldn't say any words, but Dibbuk had always given the impression that there were none he'd particularly wanted to say in any case. He just worked. These were the most words he'd ever written at any one time. They spoke to Strong in the arm of black distress, and a mind that would have been screaming if it could only have uttered a sound, which was daft. The things couldn't commit suicide. "'Boss,' said the foreman, "'I said you want me to get another one?' Strong in the arm skimmed the slate away, and with a feeling of relief watched it shatter against the wall. "'No,' he said, "'just clear things up and get the bloody hammer fixed.' Sergeant Colon, after some considerable effort, managed to get his head higher than the gutter. "'Yeah, you're right, Corporal Lord de Nobbs, he mumbled. "'Dunno, Fred. Whose face is this?' "'It's my Nobby. Thank God for that. I thought it was me.' Colon fell back. "'We're lying in the gutter, Nobby,' he moaned. "'Oh, we're all lying in the gutter, Fred, but some of us are looking at the stars.' "'Well, I'm looking at your face, Nobby.' 
Stars would be a lot better, believe you me. Come on. With several false starts, they both managed to get upright, mainly by pulling themselves up one another. Where, where, where are we, Nobby? I'm sure we left the drum. I've got a sheet over my head. It's the fog, Nobby. What about these uh, legs down here? I reckon them's your legs, Nobby. I've got mine. Right, right. I reckon I drunk a lot, Sarge. Drunk as a lord, eh? Nobby reached gingerly up to his helmet. Someone had put a paper coronet around it. His questing hand found a dog end behind his ear. It was the unpleasant hour of the drinking day when, after a few hours' quality gutter time, you're beginning to feel the retribution of sobriety while still being drunk enough to make it worse. How'd we get here, Sarge? Colon started to scratch his head and stopped because of the noise. I reckon, he said, winnowing the frazzled shreds of his short-term memory, I reckon seems to me there was something about storming the palace and demanding your birthright. Nobby choked and spat out the cigarette. We didn't do that, did we? You were shouting we ought to do it. Oh, gods, moaned Nobby. But I reckon you threw up around that time. That's a relief anyway. Well, it was all over Grabber Hoskins, but he tripped over someone before he could get us. Colon suddenly patted his pockets. And I've still got the tea money, he said. Another cloud of memory scudded across the sunshine of oblivion. Well, three pennies of it. The urgency of this got through to Nobby. Thrappence? Yeah, well, after you'd started ordering all them expensive drinks for the old bar, well, you didn't have no money and it was either me paying for them or... or... Colon moved his finger across his throat and went... You telling me we paid for happy hour in the drum? Not so much happy hour, said Colon miserably. More sort of ecstatic 150 minutes. I didn't even know you could buy gin in paints. Nobby tried to focus on the fog. No one can drink gin by the pint, Sarge. That's what I kept saying. And would you listen? Nobby sniffed. We're close to the river, he said. Let's try to get... Something roared very close by. It was long and low like a foghorn in serious distress. It was the sound you might hear from a cattle yard on a nervous night, and it went on and on, and then stopped so abruptly it caught the silence unawares. "'Far away from that as we can,' said Nobby. The sound had done the work of an ice-cold shower and about two pints of black coffee. Colon spun round. He desperately needed something that would do the work of a laundry. "'Where did it come from?' he said. "'It was over there, wasn't it? "'I thought it was that way.' In the fog, all directions were the same. "'I think,' said Colon slowly, "'that we ought to go and make a report about this as soon as possible.' "'Right,' said Nobby.' Which way? Let's just run, hey? Constable Downspout's huge pointy ears quivered as the noise boomed over the city. He turned his head carefully, triangulating for height, direction and distance. And then he remembered it. The cry was heard in the watchhouse, but muffled by the fog. It entered the open head of the golem dorfel and bounced around inside, echoing down down among the small cracks in the clay, until, at the very edge of perception, little grains danced together. The sightless sockets stared at the wall. No one heard the cry that came back from the dead skull, because there was no mouth to utter it, and not even a mind to guide it, but it screamed out into the night. 
clay of my clay thou shalt not kill thou shalt not die 